Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents. God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king, nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I just want to say thank you for the time of worship and music this morning. Um, really beneficial, I think, um, as we just come together to think about the Lord and, and think about the message today. And, and thanks for the video, too. That's been such a help through the book of Judges, just to be a reminder of what's happening <clears throat> and what's going on in the book of Judges. So thank you for that. And even the video of the upcoming series, it's such a helpful um, and creative tool. So really appreciate that. Uh, we, as Jake said, are back in the book of Judges. Maybe you thought we finally made it. Um, but we're coming back to the chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, uh, it's the seventh book uh, in your Bible. So it's not too far from the beginning. Uh, and we are right in the middle of that book in chapter 10. And we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of a tragedy. Um, a tragedy is not something that our culture really likes Right? We like movies that have happy endings, things like that. The book of Judges did not have a happy ending. And it's full of atrocities and evil and pain and sorrow. And it really is like a giant stop sign <laughs> in our Bibles that says, hold on a second. L look at these things. Think about them. Let them sink in. Let it sink in. And chapter 10, especially in the book, is, is the pivot point of the message of the book. And it says, hold on, slow down, let it sink in. Think about what's going on. Think about the stories that you've heard, let it sink in. So like many of your favorite TV series, 
We're going to start today by a short recap. You know, they always, they take the little scenes from past episodes, right? And they show them really quickly so that when you watch today's episode, um, you're like, oh yeah. So that's what I'm going to do for us to get us into chapter 10, since we've kind of been out of context a little bit. So I'm going to quickly take you uh, way back to Genesis 12 here, all the way to Abraham really quick. So I just want to recall a few things for you. God calls Abraham, who is the father of Israel, and says, I'm going to make you a people, my people and a nation. Make your name great. I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations around you. And he finds Abraham where? At a terebinth tree in Shechem. Keep that in mind. Fast forward, he has a son Isaac. Isaac has a son Jacob. Jacob is the father of the 12 sons who make up the 12 tribes of Israel. God comes down, he finds Jacob where? At a terebinth tree in Shechem. He says, Jacob, I want to make a covenant with you. I want you to go make an altar. Think about an altar being a rock or rocks piled together as a symbol of a covenant. He says, I want you to go make an altar for me. And so, but you need to cleanse yourself. Think about the song we just sang. So what does Jacob do? He says to his whole family, give me all your idols. And we need to cleanse ourselves before we go make this altar. That's what he does. He takes them and it says he hides them under the terebinth tree. Fast forward many generations. We get all the way to Joshua, right? We have Moses. They receive the law. There's a generation in the wilderness. They die in the wilderness. There's another generation. And Joshua's generation actually takes the people into the land. And at the end of Joshua's life, so at the end of the book of Joshua, what do we find? What's the scene? You guessed it. We're in Shechem. And there's a terebinth tree. And there's an altar. So what's going on? Joshua wanted to reestablish the covenant with his people. This, this is the introduction to the book of Judges. He wanted to reestablish the covenant and said, if you obey the laws of the Lord, he will bless you. We'll talk about that later. Fast forward again. We get into Judges chapter 9. This is, this is, this is right before we're going to talk about today. We see the character of Abimelech. He's not one of the judges, one of the deliverers of God's people in the book. He's like the anti-judge. He's the one who actually turns on his own people to kill them. So what do we find uh, in chapter 9? Shechem is not mentioned once in the whole book, but it's mentioned a whole bunch of times in chapter 9. And what do we find there? We find the story of the anti-judge who comes in, and what does he do? He, at a stone, he murders his 70 brothers on that stone. He takes that symbol of God's covenant. And we're thinking imaginatively here. I'm not saying it's the stone, right? Or the altar. But this is what's happening in the story of scripture. He takes that stone and he uses it to murder his family so that he can have power. And then what does he do? He cuts down all the trees. Why? Because he went to attack the people who all hid in the tower. He gets the trees. He stacks the trees around him. He says to his men, do as you've seen me do. And he's going to light them on fire and, and burn them all down. He took the tree, he took the stone, and he made the symbols of death for his own people. These were supposed to be throughout the generations, the symbol of God's uh, grace and his covenant and his life and his blessing to the people. I want to set the stage for you because when we get to chapter 10, it's serious and it's personal. 
There's, we're going to see a confrontation between the people. And it's the only place in the book of Judges we see this. And today might feel a little heavy. Um, I think that's what's supposed to happen. Okay. So the title of today's message is, Let Your Idolatry Sink In and Yahweh's Deliverance Rise Up. Let your idolatry sink in and Yahweh's deliverance rise up. I'm using the word Yahweh. If you have not heard that before, that is the personal name of God. And it's not something we you know, just want to use flippantly. I think we have to honor the Lord's name. Um, but I'm going to use it throughout the sermon today because I want it to feel personal. Because it is. So to, here's two main ideas just to, just to have in your mind as we talk about the passage today. Here's number one. Idolatry is something that we do. It's also something that does something to us. Idolatry is something we do. It's also something that does something to us. Number two, Yahweh's deliverance cannot be coerced. Not make him do it. So if you open your Bibles, we're going to start reading. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Yair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havath Yair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Yair died and was buried in Ramon. So I'm not going to get into what we call the minor judges, these short little snippets. We, there's so much confusion because we just don't have details. But here's what I want you to notice. They do serve as a unique purpose. I'll talk about one of them later. But here's what I want you to notice for now. Each of those judges, what did they do? They arose, meaning they are God's deliverer for his people, and they died and were buried. Just keep that in mind as we go along. Let's move on to verses six through nine. As we move through this, this the body of the text here, I, I've made a diagram for you. We're going to put it on the screen. For those of you who are visual, <laughs> as I am, it's really helpful just to see, especially with a creative uh, passage like this. It might be hard to read, and my apologies for that. We're just going to probably leave that up um, for your reference uh, if it's helpful for you. All right, verse six. Verses six through nine, the people of Israel again did what was evil on the side of the Lord. This is a refrain we've heard over and over and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. A few things I just want you to take note of. Again, if you want to look at the diagram, it's helpful. Um, notice this, notice sevens. Okay, seven is a, a number in the Bible that has a, symbolizes completeness or like perfection, something that's been brought to its, its fullness, its completion. 
So one of the reasons for the minor judges, if you count the number of judges through the book, there has been seven judges mentioned so far with Tola and Yair. Now there's seven. There, there's so many things going on here that, that are symbolizing this is a pivotal moment. I, I just want to draw out some of these things for you. Um, when it says they worshiped the Baals and the Ashtoreth and the gods of all these other places, how many are there? Seven. What does this mean? This means they have completely, completely, fully gone after idols and gone after other gods. That, that's what needs to sink in this morning. They've completely gone after other gods. And these Baals and the Ashtoreth, the Baals are kind of the masculine um, god in the pagan culture. And the Ashtoreth is more of the uh, feminine god, the more sexual sort of deity that they had. And these two gods would mate. That was in uh, their belief system. So when we look at like how, how this is being portrayed. It's really saying all the gods and the gods as they sort of mate. Like you, you have fully gone away. You have fully strayed. The other thing I want you to notice here is that there's, and what we need to read on, but that there's a threefold forsaking. Three times it mentions that the people forsook the Lord. And other than the prologue of the book of Judges, that word isn't used anywhere. Again, let it sink in. This is a pivotal moment. Our, our turning away from God, which is what forsaking means, needs to sink in. So one of you, or some of you might ask, so why, why is God so concerned about gods and not like bad deeds? I think that's an important question. Um, gods were uh, in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, in Exodus 20. So it's a direct violation of the covenant. I think that's one reason God would be upset about that. Uh, it's his first command. It's really significant. Uh, and what does it do? It puts Yahweh God in the place of other gods, or at least maybe puts these other gods above him. And that should not be because Yahweh is the God of all gods. Um, one of the things that needs to be, uh, that needs to sink in here too about not just our deeds is that God wants us to see that our complete strain and forsaking of him is about our hearts. It's a heart issue. Uh, from the book of Deuteronomy, we read here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. There's something about our insides that God desires and not just our deeds. And we need to feel that this morning. Um, this is uh, from the book of Jeremiah. He's sort of riffing on Psalm 1. He says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So we're not just talking about gods. We're talking about our heart. That, that's, that's the point here. Uh, and you have completely strayed. Uh, moving on to verse uh, or talking about verses seven through nine here. Why is the oppression so severe? So no notice a couple things uh, here about this passage. This is the first time in the whole book that God has handed them over to two nations simultaneously. It's significant. I have a map uh, I want to show you. Again, for those visual people, we have, they're handed over to the Philistines. How well can you see that? 
Philistines over here, they are in the east and they're attacking the center. Then we have the Ammonites in the west and they're coming to them. So they're getting it from both sides. And what does it say about the Ammonites? They came and they crossed the Jordan. They crossed the Jordan into Judah and they attacked Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Those are the three territories right in the center. If you, if you want to make impact, if God wants to show them how corrupt and how completely astray they've gone, he is showing them through this severe oppression. It is from the left, it's from the right, and it is right up the gut. And there are, for the first time, God uses two words to describe this oppression. He says, you are crushed, or they were crushed and oppressed. This word crushed is the same word that gets used at the end of chapter 9. What happens there with Abimelech? He's this awful man right there burning, trying to burn the tower down. And what happens to him? The rock, a stone, a symbol of the covenant of God. A woman throws it off. It crushes his head. That covenant that he used to inflict wounds on his own family, that covenant came back on him. That's what we need to feel. That same word crushed is the same word used there. That's what's being communicated in a really um, imaginative and creative way here. And I want to just help us see that. This word oppressed is the same word that's used in the song of Moses from Exodus chapter 15. It's used of Yahweh, God. And, and what is it describing? He oppressed the enemy, his enemy. So what is this doing? Because this is not a commonly used word. What is it doing? It's saying the people of Israel have become the enemy of God. We gotta let that sink in. We have become the enemy of God. Why? Because we have forsaken him three times over, meaning completely. We have forsaken him seven times after seven different gods, which is not, of course, limited to seven. We have completely gone astray. That is the emphasis of this passage. And then we see here the anger of the Lord mentioned. And I want to bring you back to, to put it into context of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2 says this, 2, 20 through 22. Because this people have transgressed my covenant. And this is in the prologue just describing what you're going to read in the book. Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Why? In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. That's really key for what we're about to read next. There's a test. This is a test. The oppression is a test. Let's keep reading in just verse 10 here. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Again, this is the second time we see the word forsaken. So this is the only time in the book of Judges that an explicit confession is made. Think about all the wickedness we've walked through this whole book. My goodness. And, and just awful things. I mean, of the utmost being child sacrifice. This is the only time we see an explicit confession. And this is a good thing. Uh, I think of 1 John 1, 9, as we're living in New Testament times. 
Now, many of you probably have committed that um, to memory. It says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a beautiful thing. But as we go along, we're going we're gonna to think about confession a little bit and think about um, what that might look like for us and what that means. And we might um, want to think through, what is this confession? Where is this confession coming from for the people in this story? Something I want you to keep in your mind as we move along. So what would we expect to see next? Right, there's this cycle. It's been repeated. Uh, the video shows it nicely. Um, usually at this point, there's, so there's sin, right? Again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we see this oppression. Here we see a severe oppression. And then we see repentance. We see some sort of a confession, something like that, right? And then what happens? So what, are, what, what should we expect to see? Yahweh should raise up the deliverer. We're getting to like the good part, right? Yahweh should raise up a deliverer. And then there's a period of peace. Man, I'm looking forward to that. Let's see what happens. Verse 11 through 14. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. That's not maybe what I expected to hear. Um, I don't know how that hits you, but I'm telling you at this moment, which is, which is right at the center of judges should hit us deeply. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing, but we have to ask some questions. Why does Yahweh respond this way? Why does he respond this way? So previously we've seen in the book, when God wants to give a message to the people in the book of judges, the first time he did it, he did it through what's called the angel of the Lord. And the second time he did it, he did it through a prophet. Here, the third time, he's coming himself, and he has a message for the people. Again, I'm just trying to draw out this. You, you, we got to let this sink in. This is personal, and, and I want us to feel that today. And, and if, you're feeling, if you're starting to feel overwhelmed, if you're starting to feel like, that's okay, this is feeling heavy, can we move along? There's hope at the end of this. But, but before we have the hope, we, we have to let it sink in. There's no other way to the good news without letting it sink in. So why does God respond this way? And he says, therefore, I will save you no more. That seems outside of his character. Um, we know from the covenants that this is, this is part of God's covenant with them, that there would be curses if they disobeyed. But let's read some of these uh, couple verses. Deuteronomy 31.6 says this, he will never leave you or forsake you. This is when Moses is passing the leadership off to Joshua. It's a reminder of the covenant. The Lord will never leave you or forsake you. And we're going, wait a second. What are we reading now? He says, I'm not going to save you anymore. As if to forsake them. Fair question. What about Judges 2, chapter 2, verse 1? He says, uh, God says, uh, I will never break my covenant with you. And you're like, well, okay, so what, what's going on here? Well, he's actually upholding the covenant. 
by bringing these curses. And I, and I want you to see that because our, our propensity is to read this and go, ah, I don't like that. I don't like that God says that. And I want, I want you to know it's actually really important that he does say that because it, it is his fulfillment of the promises. Sometimes um, some of us need only a soft word to, to, to feel it. Uh, recall a time, um, it was when I had got my license, my driver's license, uh, that first year in an Oregon. I don't know if it's still a law now, but they had just changed the law where for the first six months of driving, you couldn't be out after midnight. And so I had um, one night come home at 12.15. And I was, um, I've always been kind of a rule follower and want to do the right thing. Um, and was sort of innocent in that way, um, just trying to do the right thing. And I was thinking, no big deal. I'm only 15 minutes late. And I came in the back door of the house, not, not to try to like sneak in. That was just normal for us, actually. So I come, it's glass, it's like French doors, glass windows. And I come to the door and I see that the TV's on. I was like, all right. So I, I walk in the door and there's my mom and dad sitting on the couch. So what do I do? I go straight to the left into the kitchen, but there's like a huge wall between. And I open the refrigerator and I just stand there and stare. And all I hear is this, Mark. And I walked out uh, just kind of with my tail between my legs and he didn't need to say anything else. My heart sunk in that moment. And, and for some of you might think, oh, that just is like silly or it's so minor. But I'm telling you, I, I was heavy in that moment. Sometimes we just need that. The people here, they don't need that. There's been centuries of running away from the Lord and purposely doing what's wrong. Um, another instance comes to mind just to emphasize the point. In eighth grade, I was um, in band, played the saxophone out the saxophone. Towards the end, I just hated it. It was like, I'm out of here. I got to get done. But my, but my mom said, you, you have to stick it out through the year. So if you're familiar with how band works, I was third chair, a.k.a. third best out of four. Um, so I kind of had stopped practicing and, and doing those things. And uh, so come to find out, the band director had asked fourth chair, challenge me. The way it works is if you want to challenge somebody at any point, at any point, you can take a piece of the music that you all are playing and you can challenge the chair above you. And after class that day, you go to the back with the director. You both play the part. So they've had a chance to practice. You haven't. And she decides what happens. You stay where you're at or you move up and you move down. So one day I get challenged. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be bad. So I, we go back there and she played it perfectly. And I obliterated it. And I, at that moment, what I already knew was just laid bare before me. It was like, if, even if you already knew it, it was like, boom, let me smack you in the face with it. Here it is. You don't belong there. You're, you're, you're doing it wrong. We need that sometimes. The people here, they need that. And that's what's happening uh, in this passage. So um, I'm going to skip. Uh, there's a passage. I'll just give you the reference. It's Joshua 24, 19 through 27. Um, if you have any more questions about why would the Lord respond the way he does, I would encourage you to read it. 
the longer passage, but it really just says that this rock and this tree, they are witnesses against you. You have said we will obey. Now we learn they did not. The rock and the tree, they're witnesses against you. So in a sense, Yahweh is justified in his actions. And this goes to show you that Yahweh will not be put alongside other idols. Let's move along. Let's go to uh, verses 15 and 16. And I think I'll just read through the end and we'll talk through it here. Verse 15, and the people of Israel, so they're responding again. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Actually, I'm going to stop there for a second. So how did they respond? It's, it's kind of funny. I think it's funny because I can put myself in there. And I think you probably can too. Um, like, do, do whatever seems right to you. I don't think they know what they're asking or what they're saying. Because what's right is the oppression they're receiving. What's not right is that they have any relief at all. It is only by God's grace that he suspends judgment in the book at all. Not because of their, um, because of their confession. It is just by his grace that he chooses uh, to do that. So they're actually opening themselves up to further judgment by saying that. And then they say, well, okay, um, just do what you want, but, but we want to be delivered today. I think that's worth thinking about. What, what do you think is in their minds? What do you think is in their head when they're saying that? At first, it seems like um, a good confession. Um, seems like they're, they're being honest um, and truly repentant. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. The text doesn't explicitly say, so I want to talk through maybe just some options with you. And this is, there, there's two readings of these last two verses. One is a sympathetic reading. So that, that means they confess, they repent, and God, it says, this is the hard verse here. It says that God becomes impatient over the misery of Israel. So the sympathetic reading would say, God is impatient over just seeing the trouble that they're in, seeing the oppression, and the expectation then is that he's going to deliver them because he just can't bear their misery anymore. And I think that that's a fair, I think it's a fair reading of the text I think it's in line with God's character. I think it's in line with his grace and mercy and what it says about God's forgiveness. Uh, but I'd su suggest to you maybe a more unsympathetic reading. Um, it, it's the one I, I tend to, to think is right. So they confess, they repent, and it says that they serve the Lord. And it does say that they put away their idols. True repentance means what? Turning away from one thing, let's say the idols, and turning to God. This is a good thing that's mentioned here. Um, but I think what maybe is suggested um, by serve the Lord is what did they do? They went right back to just offering sacrifices and making offerings to the Lord. The way that the idol system worked is that these gods, they made an image, a wooden thing or a metal thing, and the, the presence of that God was tied to that, that image. He was bound up in that image. And what you would have to do is make sacrifices and offerings to coerce that image into doing what you want. 
I, I think there's a training of the heart that's happened in Israel, a training of the heart that says, Yahweh is just like all these other gods. I've sinned, do what you want, but let me, let me, let me serve you. Let me make some sacrifices. Let me make some offerings. Let's get this one thing done. Yahweh's not going to stand for that. Again, again, I, I, I'm, I'm reading based on the context of, of, of the book and the text. And I think this is what's going on. Um, so the word misery here is the same word that is used for toil or work or effort. We see all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It could be a sense that, that God is, is short. That's the, the word for impatient. He's short over just seeing their efforts and their work of sacrifices and we know from scripture, other places in the Old Testament, it is not sacrifices and offerings that the Lord desires. He desires a humble and contrite heart before him. Again, heart, we're, we're getting at the deeper issues. He's not so concerned about all these deeds, although they are indicative of a heart sickness that we all have. So idolatry has, has trained their hearts. It's something that they do, but it's something that does something to them. It trains their hearts to treat any God like a convenience store. I'll just go down the market and I'll get it. Or maybe like a drug dealer, if you think, want to think about it more of a, like a pleasure, sensational idea that we just go and we get, we get our fix, we get our hit when we want it. Or maybe it's more like your closet, right? You, you run to your closet and you're like, I want to fit in. I want to look this way. I'm going to go this place, look like everybody else. And we treat God like that. That's not Yahweh. So as just kind of a, a, a point of application I, to, to help you think as you go throughout the week, just think about this. What things can you watch out for in your life, which may seem small, but could be leading you away from God? So what things are you doing in life that also do something to you? What things are you doing in your life that do something to you? And what is that thing they're doing? Think about that. As we look at concluding here, um, verses 17 and 18 say this. The confrontation is over between the people and God. It says, then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. So they're both camping. There's going to be a war. And the people of the leaders of Gilead said one to another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Who is the man that will fight for us? We've just seen this episode. They, they've confessed, right? They've, they've repented. And what do they immediately do? They go, all right, let's gather up. Who's going to fight for us? There's no mention of God. There's no concept of God being them being the people of God. They, they seemingly have completely forgotten him and like, all right, let's take a vote. What do y'all think? Who, who's the biggest, baddest dude? Who's going to lead us um, in the next war? And we find out that's Jephthah, um, which we've already talked about. And there's a lot of problems um, with him. So there's no appeal to God. There's no reference to him being, uh, them being their people. This is a totally human moment where they've just forgotten Forgotten God altogether. It's like, man, what, what, what just happened here? I, I thought we were going to, I thought this, this, this confrontation was going to come to like uh, deliverance and peace. And I think this is showing us there's something in here that's, that's, that's messed up. 
There's something in here that's wrong. Something going on, on, on in our hearts that we just, we can't, we can't overcome. So in conclusion, I, I just invite us um, to kind of keep one, one thought in mind as we go. And before I say what that is, I'm just going to, I'm going to bring us back to the beginning of Judges in, in closing here. We learn in the beginning of Judges chapter 2, again, this is really important understanding the book. Chapter 2, verse 7, we learn about the generation of Joshua. It says this about them. They witnessed the Lord's mighty work, and they served him. They were there. They were witnesses. To Exodus, remember the Lord said, I saved you from Egypt. I saved you from these people. These are things that have happened in their past already. They witnessed the Lord's mighty work and they served him. The next generation, the generations of elders to follow, they remember the Lord's mighty work and they served him. That's what it says. Why? Well, probably because Joshua's generation passed it along to their children, passed it along to the next generation. What do we read about the third generation? All these numbers today. What do we read about the third time? The third generation. It says in those days, there were no witnesses. Meaning they weren't old enough. They, they, they weren't there to see it. And what? There is no remembrance of the Lord. And what do they do? They served other gods. Because it wasn't passed along. So what I want us to think about today, uh, and, and we're all going to participate together in application today also, is that we're called to remember the tragedy of the book of Judges and of our own lives. We, we have to remember it. And I, I know that's hard. I know, it, I know it conjures a pain for a lot of you and, and sorrow and, and hurt. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, the Lord will meet you there in that. Um, when they ask who will fight for us, uh, I want to tell you that Jesus fights for you. He is the one that fights for you. Um, and that is the good news. This is the good news. This is the hope. Uh, how does Jesus fight for you? Is he the military leader that comes out and conquers your enemies? Uh, no, he says, I'll die for you. I'll, I'll go out and I'll, I'll just die for you. you. You deserve it, but I'll do it. I mean, just think, think about, I mean, maybe even just think about the worst thing you've done or something you've done recently. And I, here's what I want to tell you today. Jesus died for that. He died for that. Let that sink in. It's a message of, of beautiful hope. Uh, and we learn that how was Jesus raised up? He was raised up on a cross, on a tree. And he was murdered for the sins of the whole world. And then what happened? He, he was buried. He died. He was buried. But how is he different than all these other men? who came all throughout the book of Judges. And, and if you read on all throughout the book of Kings, how is he different than all the kings that came, even King David? He rose again. He rose again. That is the good news, friends. Why? Because it means that what he did on the cross was atoned for sin. He paid for it. His forgiveness comes through that. And when he rose again, he has conquered death itself for you. So I'd ask you, uh, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't believe in Jesus today, that you would consider the weight uh, of sin, that you would consider the, the troubles of your life, that, that 
that, that the way you live matters to God, matters to Yahweh, that he cares about it, and that, and that the brokenness of your life is actually an affront uh, to his character and the way he made you to be. But he loves you and wants you um, to, to flourish in the way that he's created you. So I'd encourage you to think about that. And the Lord promises that if we um, confess with our mouth that he is Lord and believe in our hearts that he raised him from the dead, that we will be saved with him. Uh, if that's something you're thinking about or would like to know more about, please come talk to me after the service today. Um, so uh, if the band wants to come back up, um, I'm just going to conclude by reading at 1 Corinthians just to introduce our time uh, of communion. Communion uh, is something that we as believers do. If you do not yet know the Lord or believe in the Lord, um, that's okay. Um, I would love uh, to talk with you about that, but something we do together as believers is partake in communion, the Lord's table together. Um, and it is an act of remembrance. And this is something special that we get to do today because it's not something you just remember in your day-to-day -day life on your own. This is something that we do corporately. And it's a beautiful thing. This is out of 1 Corinthians 11. It says this, this is Paul, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed and took bread. And when he had given it, given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after the supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it, as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we have a new and better covenant that's not going to come crush us on the head. Why? Because Jesus took that rock on the head for us, if you want to put it that way. He suffered that for us so that we could live. Um, so as you go to the table, I encourage you to have a moment. Let some of those things sink in and confess them to the Lord and know that he is faithful and just to forgive you.